Hey, morning. <laughs> morning to everyone. Get a Bible and then open it up to Romans chapter 9. Yes, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans after taking a little hiatus while we were going through the Christmas season and the, the leading up to the week of prayer and fasting, but I'm ready to get back in this book. Before we get into it, um, we have some special guests here today. Uh, my former pastor, before I moved up here, uh, and his wife, Susan, uh, his name's Don. They're right there. I'm going to embarrass him. You guys raise your hand. Yes. If you guys were at the marriage retreat, you know that they blessed us, uh, teaching us what God had to say in his word about marriage and the heart he's given them for marriage this weekend, and we were truly blessed, so we want to thank them for that. There's also some selfish motive in me showing you who they are, because as we got closer to Sunday, uh, I realized that I was going to be teaching in front of my old pastor that taught me so much, and this voice kept getting louder in my head of, don't blow it, don't blow it. Don't blow it. So you guys can pray for me as well because there is a stress that God doesn't place on me, but I place on myself knowing that I have to teach in front of him. So all that to say is God will be faithful and honor his word. Um, all right. So just a reminder, we, we ended in Romans 8. We got halfway through the book uh, last time we were in it, and we ended with this great epic chapter where Paul is basically telling all of us, um, of all the promises and in, in the, the benefits we've received through our faith in Jesus. And we talked about how when you know these, these benefits, these things you receive, not because you've earned them or you deserve them, but be simply through your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for you on the cross, they take away every reason to dwell on your past, every reason to worry in the present, and every reason to be, it gives you every reason to be hopeful about the future. Now, of course, we have to learn to do those things, but he's given us these reasons, these assurances in his word. And now we're going to see Paul shift his focus in chapters 9 through 11 to focusing on the nation of Israel or his Jewish brothers and sisters, because he, he was Jewish. And up to this point, we've seen um, Paul in Romans really assure us that God loves us, nothing can separate us from that love through our faith in Jesus Christ, and, and that our, our salvation is secure. Nobody can take that from us. God's given it to us as a gift. We've received it through faith, and that it's not, because it's not dependent on us, that, that can never change. But if you look at the nation of Israel, one could wonder because at one point, or at several points throughout their history, they appeared to be following God, and God was active in their life and, and blessing them. But if you look at them right now, that doesn't appear to be so. It appears they've turned away from God. They haven't received the Messiah they were waiting for, that being Jesus Christ. And so one could look at them and say, well, if they've lost their relationship, or if they've fallen away from God, couldn't that happen to me too? Couldn't that same thing happen in my life as a, a follower of Jesus, as a, as a Christian? And so Paul's going to address these concerns by telling us ultimately God's overall plan for the Jewish nation. And here, I want you to hear this, because people read this chapter, and they focus on the theology of God's sovereignty versus our responsibility, and those things are great. I'm not saying theology is important, all right? But they get so caught up in that, even getting in argument, arguments over something that's meant to be an encouragement, and they completely miss out on what God wants to say to us personally in this chapter. And that is you can be absolutely, positively assured and confident that he will always be faithful to you because of his sovereignty, because he's in control. When everything from your perspective in your life seems to be falling apart, God is still there. God still loves you, and God will keep every promise he has ever made to you. You will see it eventually, just like 
he has kept and he will keep every promise he's ever made to the Jewish nation. And so that's important to understand as you're going into this chapter. Now, if I had to give you an outline for uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11, this is just a brief overview of the chapters. And if you're a note taker, write this down because this might help you understand how to read these chapters correctly. Chapter 9 shows us how God's past dealings with Israel show his sovereignty. God's past dealings with Israel show his sovereignty. Chapter 10 shows us how God's present dealings with Israel show his equity. God's present dealings with Israel show his equity. And chapter 11 shows us how God's promised dealings with Israel show his integrity. Chapter 11 shows us how God's promised dealings with Israel show his integrity. So let me pray, and then we will start going through it verse by verse. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, again, we just want to settle our hearts, settle our minds. Lord, how good it is to go through your word just line by line, verse by verse, and slowly, Lord. This is a chapter that you can kind of read through it. It can be a little hard to understand, but it's so helpful to understand and in, in, in just break down what, what Paul is trying to say, the question he's, he's, he's answering, the arguments he's making to, to help us understand your, your faithfulness. And we don't want to miss out on that because we certainly do struggle at times with believing and having faith in your word to us, the promises you've made, because we have a limited understanding of things. But you know everything, and we can take comfort in that. We don't have to know everything to know that you'll be faithful. We don't know, have to know everything to know you'll be good, and, that, and that's, those are things Paul's trying to explain to us. And so, Lord, maybe there's even people here today that are going through something difficult, something they don't understand, and they're having trouble believing in your goodness, believing in your faithfulness to see them through it. And so, Lord, may those people especially hear the voice of the Holy Spirit today as you assure them, as you remind them, as you minister to them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first thing, first three verses, what Paul's gonna do is he's really gonna explain his love for his people, for the nation of Israel he says in verse one, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my king's kinsmen, according to the flesh. So, Verse three makes it clear who his audience is. He's talking to his kinsmen, his brothers according to his flesh, the, the Jewish nation, basically. That's who he's addressing. And he makes his love for him very uh, uh, evident. I mean, in verse three, in essence, what he's saying is that if it meant my brothers and sisters getting saved, receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I'd give up my salvation for them. If I had to do that, I would do it for them. So obviously he cares about him very deeply. And the amazing thing about this is that if you were with us when we were going through the book of Acts, or if you read the book of Acts, these are the same people that when he brought the news of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel to him, by and far, most of them, what? They rejected it. They didn't want it. And some of them went as far to try to kill him for sharing that good news. Yet he loves them. He has compassion for them. And you know, if you think about it, this is the same type of love God has for us, right? Because Jesus demonstrated God's love on the cross for those that didn't deserve it, in that he was willing to die to pay the price for our sins so we could be forgiven of them, even while we were still sinners, as the Bible says. So that's unconditional love. That's the love of God. That's the love Paul's showing here. And it's the love we're encouraged to have in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, 39, amongst other places. We're encouraged by God. We're told by God to show that same type of love to our neighbors, to love God first and then love our neighbors, love the people around you. And I think if any of you guys, you guys are Christians in here, you believe God's word, you would say, yes, I agree with that theologically. But how hard is that to implement in our life? Especially when it comes to the people 
that have done things to hurt you or harm you? Is it easy in our own power to love them unconditionally? That's what God did for us. Our sin pinned him to that cross, yet he chose to love us anyway. And when I look at the love of Paul, I have to ask myself, how do you do that? How do you love somebody that has let you down? How do you love somebody that has you know, unjustly accused you of something or done some horrible atrocity against you? And I honestly think the answer is found in Romans 10, 1. Romans, 10, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart in my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. So here he is talking to his brethren again. And what he says, his, his response to them, again, the, the people that vastly rejected what he had to say, this good news he brought to him, and that even persecuted him for it to the point of wanting to kill him. What it says here, how he responded to them was he prayed that God would save them. And in doing so, listen, he not only proved his love for them, but those very prayers also produced that kind of unconditional love in him. Because prayer is a proof of love, and love is also produced by prayer. Let me say that again. Prayer is a proof of love, and love is also produced by prayer. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's almost as Jesus is saying, okay, love your enemies. I know that's gonna be hard. Here's how you do it. You pray for those people that have done things to you wrongly in your life. Romans 10, 1, showing us that Paul was more, most concerned with people's salvation rather than the things that had been committed to him by them or the wrong things that had been done to him. I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say about that point. He says, this great passion for souls gave Paul perspective. Lesser things did not trouble him because he was troubled by a great thing, the souls of men. Get love for the souls of men, then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the crotchets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries if you are concerned about the souls of men. Get your soul full of a great grief and your little grease will be driven out. You see, when we pray for people, especially those that have done wrong to us, God is able to do something inside of us. I think some of you that partook in the prayer meetings during the week of prayer and fasting, you experienced this because you could see this visible compassion develop for the lost as we prayed for them. The individuals in our life that we were praying for, the, the community, the people at the school that we were praying in, the, the people that go to the pregnancy resource clinic or the post-pregnancy clinic, you could see this compassion God was producing in us as we prayed. And this often is what obedience to God looks like in a Christian's life. We have to make the decision to have faith and believe that what he's telling us is truth and then make the effort to do it, and God meets you in that effort and enables you by his Holy Spirit to do what you could never do in your own power. And that's what he's telling us, or Jesus tells us to do there in praying for those that persecute us. Believe that this is what you should do, because God says it. Make that effort, and then God will meet you and give you the power to do that and change your heart to be in line with his. And in my own life, this is what I've experienced. I've learned this over the years, and it's a hard lesson, but I don't wanna carry around bitterness. I don't wanna carry around anger because those are horrible feelings to have, and God's freed you through Christ that you don't have to carry those anymore. You can be rid of them if you want to by going to God for help, and the way we do that is we pray, and God changes your heart to a heart of grace and compassion, just as he has. So if you got somebody in your life that you can think of, and, and, and 
I'm not saying that they were right in what they did against you. It's not a question of that. But you can pray according to God's word for them. And when I say that, we're not calling down fire. <laughs> we're gonna pray for their salvation. We're gonna pray for God to show them, you know, truth and, 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 and bless them. And, and God will help your, your attitude be in line with the way he wants it to be. Amen? Amen. All right, so now Paul's gonna go on to explain a little bit about the nation of Israel to remind them that they're God's people, to remind them of the blessings that he's given them. He says in verse four, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to flesh, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Just on a side note, if you're ever looking for a verse that clearly tells us that Christ Jesus is God, this right here is as clear as a verse as you could ever find here in verse five. He is the Christ who is God over all. Amen? All right, now Paul tells us these truths about the Israelites. Basically, first they were adopted by God or they were chosen by God to be his people. And remember, this isn't because they were special or they were like super righteous people. God tells us in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, among other places, they were stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Basically, they were difficult people. So it wasn't like they were chosen because they were more righteous than others. It was because it was, they were champions of, or trophies of God's grace. That's why they were chosen. Um, the second thing he points out is they got to experience the glory of God, that being a reference to the, what's called the Shekinah glory of God. Basically, when they, would travel, when they were traveling through in Exodus through the desert or through the wilderness, God's glory appeared as a cloud over them that led them during the day and a pillar of fire, like smoke and fire that would lead them at night or light the way at night. And then there'd be this visible manifestation of God's glory that would come and fill the tabernacle and come and fill the temple. So they got to see the glory of God. He, he mentions that they, they received the covenants or the law. These were parts of God's word that he gave them to help them know this is how you excel in life. This is how you succeed in life. You do these things. They were taught how to worship or how to serve God. Serving God always being for our benefit because you will never ever be more satisfied or have a greater reward than in doing what God has made you and told you to do. They were given the promises of God all in God's word, all these great promises of blessing that a lot of them were unconditional. I'm just gonna do this because I'm merciful and of, because of my grace. Promises they could rely on. They were given the pa uh, patriarchs, like verse five says. All these great godly men that God did great things through. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the list goes on. And then last but not least, the greatest gift they were given was the Christ, Jesus Christ himself, who was born of a Jewish mother and who along with came, came to die to, to pay the price for the sins of all mankind, came to save them too. But Christ himself saying in, in Matthew 15, 24, that he was sent to help the lost sheep of Israel. And so, knowing these truths, knowing these promises that God's made to them, how he's blessed them, he goes on to answer, if Israel's so blessed by God, why is it in its present condition? Or specifically, basically, it looks like God's abandoned them based off our perception of things, based off of what we see. And he's gonna go on to explain now why that's not the case at all. So the first reason why God has not abandoned them is that not all of Israel has chosen to follow God. First reason, not all of Israel has chosen to follow God. As Paul tells us in verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means 
that it is not the children of the flesh, or that's another way of saying those that would follow their flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, or those who believe the word, the promises of God, and have faith in God, are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Paul quoting Genesis 18.10 there. So again, remember, he's addressing this question like, if God's failed in his plan regarding the Jewish people, because that's what it seems like's happened, they haven't believed in Jesus. He, they don't appear to be following him now. And Paul's saying, no, that's not actually what's happened at all. Just because we have not seen the promises of God fulfilled in all the lives of the Jews does not mean he's not been faithful to keep his word to them simply because not all of the Jewish nation are his people. The word Israel means governed by God. So Paul is saying that just because people are born Jewish does not automatically mean they choose to be governed by God. Paul giving us the example of Abraham's sons in verses 7 through 9. Ishmael being born Jewish or as an offspring of Abraham, but he was a result of Abraham following his flesh or because of sin in his life. And he ended up not being a follower of God or a child of the flesh. So the promises given to the Jewish nation by God did not apply to him because he wasn't a follower of God. God not even acknowledging Ishmael as Abraham's son, as we just saw in Genesis 22 a couple weeks ago, when he asked Abraham to offer his only son, Isaac, up as a sacrifice. Remember that? And that should bring us some comfort because here's the thing. Need I remind us, we all have Ishmael's in our life. We all have consequences from past sin, but what this tells us, or what we know from the New Testament is that through our faith in Jesus, God chooses to not even acknowledge those. Amen? You guys don't sound excited for that. Amen. Amen. Now, Abraham's other son, Isaac, was somebody born as a part of God's promise to Abraham in his descendants, and was a follower of God or a child of the promise, and therefore somebody God's word applied to. So the word of God has not failed for those Jews that are true followers of God, and for those that choose to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, his word will not fail for them. The same principle applies to being a follower of Jesus. Just because somebody calls himself a Christian does not mean that they're a Christian, if you are a true Christian, that will be shown by Jesus being your Lord or that your life is governed by God in his word. And if that's you, God will always be faithful to keep every promise he makes to you in his word. Paul going on to give us another example of this principle with Isaac's two sons. But in this case, instead of it being based on a, a person's free will or a person's choice to follow God, the following example is based on God's sovereign choosing of who is. As Matthew twenty two fourteen tells us that um, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the second reason Paul gives us that shows us that God has not abandoned the Jewish nation is that, number two, not all Jewish people are chosen by God. Not all Jewish people are chosen by God. As Paul goes on to say in verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. So, in the case of Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob and Esau, God chose or elected Jacob to be the heir of God's covenant of salvation to the Jewish nation. And that's a bit of a more perplexing choice because in, in, in the case of Isaac, who was born through faith and Ishmael was born through sin, it's, it's more understandable. Okay, well, this... This, this child went on to not follow God. This child went on to follow God. But in this case, God made the choice for reasons only known to himself, even before they were born, as it says in verse 11, meaning 
It couldn't have been performance-based or because of something they'd done in their lives. And verse 11 goes on to tell us it wasn't because of any works that God knew in advance that they do. So what Paul's saying here is that God's sovereign choice in salvation is something that, that we need to consider because God's word clearly talks about it along with our responsibility to choose him as well. And as such, we need to consider those things as why some of the nation of Israel appear to follow God and some don't. It being wrong, though, for us to think that God's choosing is random, all right? We don't want to make that mistake. As we saw not too long ago in Romans 8, 29, God's choosing is at least in part to foreknowledge, as that verse says, which means that God is all-knowing. He knows past, he knows the present, he knows the future. And as a part of that, he knows who will follow him and who won't. So rest assured, we can know, because God knows everything, that he has a plan. He has a reason for any choices he's making. And obviously, he's always right because he can't make a mistake. And if you want to know if he was right in the choosing of Jacob over Esau, here's my encouragement to you. Read your Bibles. Because Esau was somebody that we see that was way more interested in following his flesh in carnal things than the things of God or spiritual things. So based off of that fact alone, it would lead you to show you that God was right in who he chose there. And the bottom line is, we don't have to understand God's reasoning to trust his choices as we know, since he is good, that ultimately any choice he makes is always going to be good. When my kids were young, and as they grew up, I haven't always explained to them the reasoning behind the choices I make, because I have to uh, consider whether they're old enough to understand that. When I have a two-year-old and I tell him, don't go out in the road without me, I, I'm not going to sit there and try to explain to him the ins and outs of cars and, and how they could really hurt him because he can't understand that. All he needs to understand is don't do this because I have your best interest in mind. And in the same manner, God doesn't have to explain everything to us because we can't understand things at his level. We don't see the whole picture. We can't think like he does. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 tells us this. It says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's not that God's being mean and saying, yeah, just deal with it. Just do what I say. No. You wouldn't understand it if he did. So there's no point in trying to understand it. And here's the thing. If God was small enough for us to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. Amen? Amen. Now, before we move on here, because I just got a Q&A question for our Q&A night regarding this verse, I want to talk about it a little. Um, and that's verse 13 where it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. All right? Because that causes some tension right? We think of John three sixteen for God so loved the world. That means he loved everyone. That's what we've been taught, right? That's what we believe. So, you know, th this verse along, there's other verses in the Old Testament that says he hated this person in their sin. And so that's one of those tensionaries in scripture where we like to deal in absolutes. It's got to be one or the other, but God's like, no, it's both. But you have to understand what's being said here. And the context of this statement is regarding God's choosing of one over the other to become the heir of the covenant given to Abraham and his descendants. So God's preference in this situation could be seen as an act of love toward Jacob and hate towards Esau in that regard. Or basically that God showed love toward Jacob by accepting him and he showed hate toward Esau by rejecting him. But that statement isn't necessarily reflective of God's feelings towards them in all the other areas of their life. And one thing I would point out is that it tells us in Genesis 33 and 36 that Esau was, in fact, very blessed by God. 
in that he recognized God's favor in his life. In Genesis 33, 11, he, he comes to his brother in that reunion with Jacob, and he's like, I don't need your stuff. God's been gracious to me. So the way we often think of the terms love and hate is absolutes like either I just completely hate somebody and I just don't want to do anything nice for them or I love somebody and I want to do, that's not what's being conveyed here. It's a preference over one over the other in this situation. And the way I was thinking of this is like, there's oftentimes, and you parents can probably relate to this, where you, you're raising your kids and you want to do something nice for one of them. Maybe there's a certain gift you want to get one or you like, you know, like I can think of times where I wanted to have a father-son day with one of my sons. And so because I didn't get that gift and the other ones wanted it, or I didn't do the thing that the other boys wanted to do with the other ones, they looked at that as an example, that specific example, and they're like, you don't love me as much as you love so-and-so. Or you must hate me and love them. Just looking at that one instance, but completely forgetting all the other instances where I've clearly shown love, Right? But because I wasn't showing preference to them in that one area, they think that. And that's kind of like what's being conveyed here. Amen? Amen. All right. Though I would say that if you really understand the depravity of us, like the sin we're guilty of, the, the mystery in that statement, verse 13, isn't so much that he hated Esau, but really the harder thing to understand is how could he love Jacob? That's the mystery, but that's what God's word says, amen? All right, now in our limited understanding, some might question God's choices. They might still say, well, I just don't think that's fair. How could he choose Jacob over Esau? That's just unjust, so Paul addresses that question. He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, or absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, or the idea is that it's, it's not a matter of what people deserve, but on God who has mercy. Now, I want you guys to listen here, because this is really important to understand this concept of mercy. We need to understand uh, what Paul's saying here. Let's just define what mercy is, all right, in case we have a misunderstanding of it. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, okay? Biblical mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So therefore, mercy is not a right that any of us have. And as such, one can't be unfair for not showing it. And I would caution us not to fall into the trap of thinking that somehow we deserve God's mercy or that we deserve God's grace because often in our lives when we're struggling with understanding things and we get mad at God, like why is this happening? That's where it's coming from. We think we deserve something from him. And here's the thing, God doesn't owe us anything. Well, he does, actually. Let me go on and explain, all right? If God owed us something, that would not be mercy. That would be what we call obligation. And here's the truth of the matter, is that because of our sin against God, he does owe us something. He is obligated to show us judgment and wrath. But instead, he chose to show us mercy by sending his one and only son to fulfill that obligation on the cross in our place. And Paul quotes Exodus thirty-three nineteen and verse 15 where God says he reserves the right to show mercy and compassion to whom he decides to. His mercy never being something earned by our actions, as verse 16 says, which means, listen, God is never less than fair with everyone. God is never less than fair with everyone, but he reserves the right to be more than fair with anyone. He reserves the right to be more than fair with anyone he chooses. Paul going on to give Pharaoh in Exodus is an example of this. In verse 17, he says, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. So God's word tells us here that God allowed Pharaoh to rise to power in the days of Moses so that God could show his power and glory, uh, glorify himself to the whole world through the miraculous things he did in delivering his people from Egypt. God sometimes glorifying himself through showing his mercy as he did with the Jewish people when he saved them from Egypt, but also other times through a person's hardness or rejection of him as he did by judging Pharaoh for his refusal to obey God's word given through Moses. Now, something that's important to note is that God did not change Pharaoh's heart from being a good heart to being a stubborn and hard heart. His heart was already like that. It was in sinful rebellion against God. So God simply let Pharaoh's already sinful heart follow its desires. Or basically, God just confirmed the decision that Pharaoh had already made by his own free will. Just Read your Bible and you will see, as it says in Exodus, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart toward God numerous times before it ever says that God hardened his heart. And that's important to note. This being despite the fact. Now remember this too, because God is merciful and he's patient and he gave Pharaoh time after time to listen to his word through Moses, which was confirmed in miraculous ways right in front of him over and over again. He gave him time after time to repent and listen and turn, and he chose not to. Now, one might say, well, if God chooses some like Jacob and rejects others like Esau or raises up some like Pharaoh only to put them down, does a person's choice even matter? So Paul addresses this. He says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So again, he presents this question that someone may ask is, if it's all a matter of God's choice, then how could anything I do wrong ever be my fault? I'm just doing what God made me to do. And in verses 20 through 21, Paul's basically just saying, you don't see the whole picture. Just as like if a, a potter was making a piece of clay, only the potter knows what the point of that clay is. Only he knows what it's going to be. Only he knows what usefulness it's going to have because he made it. So that, that, that clay has no right to ask the potter anything because he, can't under, he, he doesn't have the knowledge that the potter has. And so he's basically going back to that truth that you, you can't understand what God has. He's made you. He's got a purpose for you. You wouldn't even understand if you asked him, so you don't have the right to. And here's the thing. Again, God says that he's sovereign and that he chooses. But he also says you have a responsibility to make right choices. Why? It doesn't matter. That's what he says, and that's what you need to listen to. See, we, again, we, we want absolutes. We want, well, it's got to be either or. Does it? It can be both because God says it's both. And when you get to that point where those both collide, you just in faith Accept it because God says so. Amen? Paul continuing to explain how God absolutely has the right to glorify himself however he sees fit. As he says in verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Note, note this. Sometimes we can add words that aren't in there. It does not say here that God has prepared them for destruction. The idea here is that these people do plenty of that on their own in their choices, right? Goes on, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul goes on to give us some similar examples to Pharaoh. He says, if in saying, if God chooses to glorify himself through letting people follow their sinful desires and righteously receive his wrath as a result, so as to show his power to those watching, does he not have the right to do that? If, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if God so chooses to glorify himself by being more than fair with others and showing them mercy, doesn't he have the right to do that as well? And if God wants to show the same mercy that he's shown to the Jews who thought that was only for them, to the Gentiles, as Paul says in verse 24, of course, never being less than fair to anyone because he's always just, doesn't he have a right to do that? Paul goes on to say in verse 25, and indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her, and, her, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, there they will be called sons of the living God. So like what Paul's doing here now is he's giving an example in Israel's history how God's sovereignty or God's choosing actually benefited them. Because he chose to show them mercy when he didn't have to. If you don't know the story of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet. And so he's speaking about these things God told him. And, and he, Paul references Hosea uh, chapter 1 verse 10, chapter 2 verse 23. And, and it's an example of where he was more than fair in showing mercy to them. Because at the beginning of Hosea in chapter 1, he tells the prophet, you're going to have a child and you're going to name him lo a me, which basically means not my people. And it was reflective of where the nation of Israel stood in their unrepentant sin against him. Not my people. You're not following me. You're not doing the things that I say that will lead to your goodness. You're in sin. You're facing the consequences for it. Yet God also promised in Hosea that this judgment, it ain't going to last forever. Because eventually you guys are going to see the mistakes you're making. You're going to repent. And as soon as you do that, I'm going to restore you. And at that time, you're going to be called the sons of the living God again, as verse 26 says. So he's saying, because of my sovereignty, because of my choosing, because I choose to show you mercy, I showed you grace when you didn't even deserve it. That should give you confidence. Even when you didn't think things were good, I showed you mercy and they turned out good. Paul going on to give us a third reason that shows that God had not abandoned the Jewish nation, and that is there has and will always be a remnant of Jewish people that follow the Lord. This is the third reason, the last one we're going to talk about today. There has and will always be a remnant of Jewish people that follow the Lord. As he goes on to say in verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So Paul here, he quotes Isaiah 10, uh, verses 20 through, through 23. And what's happening is here is God is speaking of this remnant of Israel that would be saved during an Assyrian attack that was coming as a result of sin in their lives. Basically, they had sin in their lives, unrepented sin, and God was allowing judgment to come to get their attention. And so he's speaking regarding this instance, and he's telling them, because of God's sovereignty, I spared some of you in that attack. And had I not sovereignly intervened, you all would have been wiped out, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, in verse, as he says in verse 29. Basically, he's telling them, if it wasn't for my sovereignty, there wouldn't, you guys wouldn't, because of the sin in your life, there would have been no hope for you. It's because I'm sovereign in control that I'm able to show my mercy in your life and save you even when you don't deserve to be saved. So even in God's righteous judgment of Israel's sin, he still chose to show that mercy and save a remnant despite them not deserving it. That's what he's trying to help them understand, the benefit of his sovereignty, that he had never abandoned them. So again, going back to what was 
said at the very beginning, the reason, what Paul's trying to explain here, he's trying to to defeat this argument that somehow God had not been faithful to the Jewish nation. And he's saying, as as bad as the state of the Jewish nation may seem to you in your limited understanding, okay, just looking around them, he's saying, yeah, things seem bad. But the reality is, first and foremost, it could have been and would have been so much worse had God not been faithful, as he pointed out, And had God not sovereignly intervened to ensure that his promises came to pass in their life. Basically, he's pointing out to them, things aren't as they seem. You're focused on all the negative. But in reality, things would have been way worse had I not been involved in your life because of your sin. And that same truth goes for us. Because here's the thing, people. As bad as things seem to be, and I'm not making light of hard things because in this life, Jesus was honest. It will be hard. Not because of God, but because of sin. That's why he hates sin so much because the consequences of it extend far beyond just your life as damaging as they are. They go to generation after generation. And that's why he hates it because it destroys It steals and it kills. And that's why Satan tries to get you to do it. But here's the thing. As bad as it seems at times, I can guarantee it would be so much worse if God had not chosen to save you. If God had not chosen to show you mercy that none of us ever deserved. And I would say that if you have an issue with putting yourself in the hands of a sovereign God that determines your destiny, you should look at the cross and realize that those very hands you're putting yourself in had nails driven in them willingly, that he allowed himself to be hung on a cross and die a sinner's death not for any sin he did, but for every sin we've ever done and will ever do so that we could be forgiven of them and made right with him and that we could receive this gift of salvation and all of the promises that come with that that aren't based on you or what you do or what you did, but completely based on the God that sovereignly is in control of them and has told you, I will do this in your life. It'll be hard here. You won't always understand. You can't think on my terms. You don't always see the full picture. But in hindsight, I will always be good. I will always be faithful. I've already shown you how much I love you. Is there any question I was willing to sacrifice my son so you didn't just hear me say how much I loved you? I showed you. I gave you the proof of how valuable you are so that you could confidently know that you are in my hands, nothing can snatch you away from me, and everything I say to you will happen in your life. You'll see it. And because of that, you can get up tomorrow, even in the midst of the hard, and you can keep going because you know where you're going to, and nothing can take you off his path. All we need to do is follow him. Even as we talked about a couple weeks ago, just surrender our lives. How could you not surrender your life? If he was willing to surrender his life for you, you can just go to him and say, I'm in your hands, Lord. I wanna be in your hands. Whatever you want, that's my only hope. And when you believe and understand that great love he has for you, that sovereignty of God becomes the greatest assurance in your life, the greatest confidence. When everything starts to seem like it's falling apart, you understand, I don't understand it, but it's fallen into place. That's what God says. It's all fallen into place. And I just need to keep drawing near to him and let him lead me to that place I know I'm going where I'll see that eventually one day. Amen? Amen.
So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna um, have a response time. The worship team's gonna come up here. We're gonna take communion on your own. We're gonna praise God. We're gonna worship him. And part of that praise is even when you don't feel like it, praising him for those promises that have yet to be seen. For that, praising him out of that confidence of the, his sovereignty, of the things he said in his word, and, and, and reminding yourself that he's gonna be faithful. Paul is telling us here in Romans 9, God has been faithful to Israel. He will be faithful to Israel. He will continue to be faithful as an encouragement to all followers of God that God will always be faithful. But we need to remind ourselves of that, especially in the midst of difficulty. So we're gonna praise him for that. We're also gonna come up and get the communion elements. And here's my encouragement to you. You guys are gonna take them Together, if you came with a spouse, I want you to take it together. Lead each other in it. If you came with your family, if you're sitting next to your kids, do it together. Remind yourselves that that bread speaks of his body that was broken for you and broke the power of sin and death. That that blood, that juice represents his blood that was spilled to atone for your sins so that you are completely forgiven and Remind each other that because of that, because of what Jesus did for you, because you've received it in faith, you are God's child. And nothing can pull you away from him. He's got you firmly in his grip and everything he's told you in his word is absolutely true and he will be faithful to keep it. Amen? Remind each other of that. And continue to praise him. We'll have our prayer team around the room too. If you need prayer, if you're, if you're in that place of like going through something hard and, and, and just struggling with that reality of like, I know God says this, but I just, I am having trouble believing it. I just can't see how this is gonna work out for good. Come up and get prayer. Bear that burden with your brothers and sisters because we've been there. And we want to pray with you because when we, those of us that have been there and seen God come through and actually in hindsight look and say, yeah, I didn't understand it either, but God did it. He was faithful. We can speak with confidence. We can pray with you in confidence to help you have that same faith to keep going, to keep trusting. Amen. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for just Paul explaining to us so clearly how you've always been faithful to your people despite what the circumstances might appear that you have not left them that you have not been unfaithful that you will keep your word that you have kept your word so that we can have that same assurance in our lives lord some of us need that right now we need that reminder because all we see is the valley that we're going through that's all around us and it's deep lord and it's dark and it's scary, and it hurts. But Lord, we need to be reminded that you're there with us. You're there to give us the grace we need to keep going. And you're there to, as David says, bring us through that valley. That we're gonna come out of it one day. Whether that's here on this earth or there in the next life where there is gonna be no more sorrow, there is gonna be no more pain. We're not gonna, our questions are gonna be answered, Lord. We just know where we're going, and that's through the valley. We're not staying here forever. And we're thankful you're with us, and let us just turn to you now. Lord, let those people turn to you right now and be reminded of that, that you're there with them to guide them through and to keep every word you've ever said to them. In Jesus' name, amen.